Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 119. And get also Psalm 12. Psalm 119 and Psalm 12. How many of you have a Bible? Everybody look around. Hold your hands up. Everybody look around. You have a Bible. If you don't have one, if you look under the chair in front of you, there should be a Bible there that you can use today. There is such a thing, we've talked about it before, as the curse of knowledge. And what the curse of knowledge is, is once you learn something, it's almost impossible to remember what it was like not to know it. Now, there are certain things like, you know, before you ever had a cafe mocha. You can remember what it was like before you had that. And then your life was never the same, especially if it's a peppermint mocha. Then, you know, then you might as well just go to heaven because life doesn't get any better than that. So on frivolous things like that, it is possible to remember what it was like. But on these great movements, these great things that God has done for us, it would be very difficult for any of us to understand what the world was like before the Protestant Reformation. It would just be hard for us to even think about what the world was like there in general. But then the significant, that, the significant change that took place after the Reformation, both in the Catholic world and in the Protestant world. And then Baptists were always this fringe group going all the way back to the apostles and running for their lives and hiding in dens and caves and, and all of that. And there have always been religious conflicts, and there's religious conflicts today. Um, the college I graduated from, Crown College, had a young man um, who was a missionary in uh, Baghdad, and he was just shot and killed this week. And his family, they had to figure out how to get his family home. And he was killed because he was preaching the gospel in Baghdad. So that's a modern Christian martyr this week. Just, just this past week, this happened. And so when we talk about these conflicts from history, um, understand that conflicts are still they're still going on today. But there are some results of the conflicts that we need to be brought, uh, that need to be brought to our memory so that we can be thankful. And I asked you a minute ago, how many of you have a Bible? It's hard for us to comprehend what a privilege that is. So today, and Amanda, thank you for that, that slide, thankful for the Word of God thankful for the Word of God. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of the story of how we got our Bible and why we should be thankful. But let's look at some scripture first. The first thing that I want you to see about the Bible is that it's made up of words, and those words are pure words. So Psalm 12, look at verse 6. Psalm 12 and verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. So one of the things that God has done for us is he gave us his words, and they are pure words. Now, there's other literature that might not have anything objectionable, but those words don't have the purity that the Word of God has. So if you read Huckleberry Finn, that's good literature, but it's not the Bible, right? And so when we start to look at the Bible and the purity of the words, it took something for that to happen, and that is preservation. So remember, when we talk about the Bible and how we got it, there are four words that we need to know. 
The first word is inspiration. Inspiration. Inspiration comes from two Greek words meaning God breathed. God breathed. And Job 32.8 says that there is a spirit in man and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. So inspiration is God giving his words, his mind to the mind of men. And then in 1 Timothy, it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So the way that God gave scripture was through inspiration. That is, he put his words into the minds of men, his specific words. The next word that we have to understand is preservation. Preservation is the process of God keeping his words pure. So look at our verse again. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. So they are pure, but they have to be kept pure. So if, ladies, you make a pumpkin pie, and I'm very excited about pumpkin pie. Can we just stop there for a minute? Very excited about pumpkin pie. Now imagine your dog got up on the counter and started licking the pie. Would you still serve it? (laughs) Stacy, nobody will know. (laughs) Brian, be careful, (laughs) okay? Uh, Why? Because it's not pure anymore. It started pure, now it's not pure, right? So... The, this idea of purity and inspiration is really important, but it would mean nothing without preservation. So look at the next verse. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So God gave them in purity, and then he preserved them. So preservation is the process of God supernaturally keeping his words pure from error pure from corruption. So the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver, tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So you have inspiration, preservation. There's another word that you need to know about. It's inscripturation. So God gave his words to the mind of men, but then those words had to get on paper. They become scripture when they're written down. They become become scripture. And sometimes it was the... So it might be the Apostle Paul, or it might be a secretary that Paul dictated the words to. It might be Jeremiah, or it might be his scribe Baruch, but it doesn't matter. The Bible says that God inspired the words, and then he had them written down perfectly. And then he preserved them perfectly for us throughout the centuries. All right, then our last, so the first word is inspiration, second word is preservation, third word is inscripturation, the fourth word is translation. Translation is the process of taking the words and putting them into another language. Sometimes um, a real wooden translation wouldn't make any sense. So um, Amy made me a list of, Amy Roth made me a list of Spanish phrases that don't translate well into English, and that's where translation comes in. So translation is a word-for-word process where you take a word, let's say, from English and then give the Spanish word. Or you take a word from Greek and put it in Spanish, or you take a word from Greek and put it in English. That's translation. But in actual terms, 
Sometimes you have to really understand what the Greek meant, and you have to really understand how to communicate that in English. And so it's a lot more complicated than just taking one word and finding a dictionary and taking it across into another word. Are you following me on this? So translation becomes very important. Why is translation important? Because Jesus said, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word of God. If you don't know those words and understand them in your own language, then you can't have life. You can't have spiritual life. It's vital that people have the words of God in their own language. Now, I just want to make one caveat here. The receptor language, like English from Greek or Hebrew, the receptor language has to have enough words to communicate the words of Scripture, or the Bible can't be translated into that language. Does that make sense? If, if the, your, your language doesn't have a lamb, if it doesn't have the word sacrifice, if it doesn't have a word like substitution, you can't have the Bible. So then you're going to have to learn. Someone's going to have to teach those people those words and then teach them what they mean. That's where missions work is so amazingly vital. We can't just mail them a book. Are you all following me right here? Really important. So we have this great privilege of having a language that is capable of communicating the scriptures. And what the great English and Greek and Hebrew scholars of history have said is that the English, listen, this is going to sound crazy, better communicates the truth than the Hebrew or the Greek did. Do you, do you realize how blessed we are? Let me say that again. Do you realize how blessed we are to have this language? Now, English is not the only language that can do that, but it happens to be the one that we speak. And so I'm very, very thankful for it. So our first word is purity. The words are pure. Then they are also preserved. And let me say this. Look with me at Psalm 119. Look at verse 47. And we have this verse on the walls in the back. I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved, and I will meditate in thy statutes. Um, his words are precious. They're pure. They're preserved. And they're precious. And I want to talk to you about why, why should we be thankful for the Bible and then I want to tell you a little bit about the amazing things that God did to keep his words pure for us. So this is Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Sinaiticus. And our guys are going to zoom in on this so that you can see it a little bit. Codex Sinaiticus was discovered at St. Catherine's Monastery in 1844. So, can we zoom in there a little bit more? I'll tell you what, let's do this. I'm going to take it to my center spot, and we'll do that. 
Awesome. That's better, isn't it? So, if you look on the right side, do you see that blank spot in the middle of the page? Do you all see that? That's where the last 12 verses of Mark are supposed to be. The other thing, are you zoomed in as far as you can go? All right, so let me move it over this way a little bit. What you'll see, oh good, right there. Do you see those notations on the side? And do you see the dark spots in the text? Do you all see that? What those are, those are corrections, changes made in the manuscript. So this is a handwritten copy of the entire New Testament. It was discovered in a monastery in uh, Egypt in uh, 1844 by a guy named Constantine von Tischendorf. So he stole about 40 pages of it and took them and, and, and published them. And then he kept, he went, he made two other trips back and they wouldn't let him see it again because these other pages had disappeared. In 1859, he was given access to it because, so he was a German, but he was sent by the Tsar under the authority of the Tsar. The monastery there was a Greek Orthodox church and the Greek Orthodox church was under the authority of Russia. And so the czar gave him permission and the monastery had to give him access to it. So in 1859, Tischendorf borrowed it. The monastery says he stole it. It was supposed to be a loan. He never gave it back. It ended up in Russia. In 1933, Joseph Stalin sold it to the British Library for $175,000. So this is considered a 4th century, the 300s, copy of the New Testament. And it's considered the most important, by modern scholars, it's considered the most important manuscript copy of the New Testament in the world because it's the most complete, it's the oldest, they all love it. But if you actually do a little bit of research on it, it's the most corrected Corrupted manuscript in the world. There are more than 23,000 corrections in this manuscript. So honestly, why would anyone give that authority over your Bible? It, it just doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense at all. But I want to talk about how God preserved his word and kept it precious. That wasn't photographed until 1910. The guy named Kursop Lake. So, so remember, uh, Constantine Tischendorf got access to it. He published it, but he didn't publish pictures of it. He produced uh, a printed copy of the letters. So in other words, they typeset it. And when you see a copy of it, it looks beautiful. It looks perfect because it would be like if I took, uh, Chad wrote a manuscript in, in his scrawl, and then I type it up, well, the typed thing's going to look great, right? The chicken scratch might not. That's the difference between this, this is an actual photographic facsimile of it that the British Library put out, and what Tischendorf put out. So the people who were exalting this, they didn't understand how bad it really was. So Kursop and his wife Helen Lake, they were textual critics 
they actually photographed it in 1910. So for the first time, people were able to see it. And when people saw it, they started thinking, well, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't really what I thought it was. Let me tell you some of the things that are missing from this. The, the resurrection of Jesus in Mark chapter 12, or Mark chapter 16, the last 12 verses, they're not there. Um, they're just not there. That's that blank spot that I showed you. It's just not there. Uh, how about this? Um, tell me if you're familiar with this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so what does the, what does the Bible say? It says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. How many of you have ever heard that? That's not in there. Has anyone heard the story, read the story of the woman caught in adultery? And what did Jesus say? He that is without sin, what's he supposed to do? That's not in there. Not just that verse, the entire story. The entire account of the woman caught in adultery and Jesus Christ bending down and writing in the sand and, and saying, go and sin no more. That, that whole thing, it's not there. You understand a lot of people have gotten relief from that because they've had, they have sin in their past and they get forgiveness from the Lord and the possibility of going and living a different life because of the way that Jesus Christ changes us through his salvation. That's a vital part of Scripture. It's just, it's not in there. Um, how about this? Luke 24, 51, and it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. How many of you think the ascension of Jesus Christ is important? It's not in there. It's just not there. How about this? Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you know what it leaves out? The Son of God. Are you starting to think that maybe whoever produced this had some kind of an agenda? Forgiveness of sin, ascension of Jesus Christ, the identification of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. These are not coincidences. Um, how about this one? It's in Luke 9, 55 and 56. But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit, what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. That verse is gone. I've already said Luke 24, 51, Mark 1, 1. Um, these are things that are, that are just removed. Our Bible says this in Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no man knoweth, no, not the angels from heaven, but my father, or the angel of heaven, but my father only. Here's what it says in Codex Sinaiticus. But of that day and hour, no man knoweth, neither the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only. Not my father only. You see, these are doctrinal things that become very important. And if God gave us the words and they're pure words and preserved words, think about this. You have 1,800 years of Christianity, people learning the Bible, learning doctrine. And it wasn't until 1900 that this was foisted upon the world. And there's another one called Codex Vaticanus. I have a small copy of Codex Vaticanus here. It's called Codex Vaticanus because it was placed in the Vatican Library in um, the middle of the, of the 1400s. And 
In many places, it agrees with Codex Sinaiticus. The only time this came to be known, this Codex, Codex just means book. A manuscript is a handwritten copy. A, a Codex is when they're bound together, those manuscripts are bound together in a book. So a Codex, this Codex Vaticanus, people didn't really know about it until the man who produced this text, Desiderius Erasmus, he produced the first printed Greek text in 1516. He was collating Greek texts to correct the Latin Vulgate, the the Bible of the Catholic Church, the Latin Vulgate. There were some problems with it, and Erasmus was a Catholic priest, and he was uh, correcting it. And so he was interacting with the Pope, trying to get a hold of this, but they kept this hidden. They wouldn't give people access to it. As a matter of fact, Constantine Tischendorf, the man who discovered uh, Sinaiticus, uh, he tried for years and years and years to get access to Vaticanus, but it was only given a couple of hours with it. They, they didn't trust him with it. And neither of those manuscripts, neither of those texts were allowed to be seen, listen, listen, by God for over a thousand years. So the vast majority of the Bibles that are in the world, these have had zero influence on. What was God doing? He was preserving his word for us. He was protecting it. And even today, of people who read the Bible in English, 55% of them read a Bible that has no influence of this at all. And that's the Bible that we use, the King James Bible here at Grace Baptist. So God kept his word pure. And you know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful that I get to have a pure Bible. I get to have the words of God. Let's, let's keep going. So we move ahead in history. And by the time we get to the 1300s, there's a man, his name is John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe is born uh, probably around 1330. And in 1374, something special happens. Remember that there was a battle in the Catholic Church that you had two papacies. You had a, a, a pope, a, a French pope in Avignon, France, and you also had the pope in Rome. And so that was a battle within the Catholic Church. England would have been under the authority of the Avignon priesthood or, or papacy. And But the problem was uh, Edward III had been in war with France. It hadn't gone well. They didn't have much money in England. So they sent some representatives to argue about the, the prelacy, the, the, the form of church government, and how much money England had to give the church. And the man they sent was John Wycliffe. So John Wycliffe, under a guy named John of Gaunt, he was the, the royal that was sent. The theologian was Wycliffe. Wycliffe started studying the church from the Bible, started trying to understand what does the Bible say about the church and the, 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 the human government, the state, the, the king and the church and the money. What does the Bible say about that? Well, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar and render unto God that which is God's. The state doesn't have anything to do with the church. Church doesn't have anything to do with the state. They're supposed to be separate. Wycliffe realized that. And let me just tell you something. That is what changed the world. John Wycliffe and his followers changed the world. They were a group of people called the Lollards. The Lollards. 
And what a lot of people don't understand in history, the Lollards converted half of England. It's hard for us to even comprehend how significant this was because the, the, the state church had become so corrupt that the common people just wanted to know what the truth was. So, in 1380, John Wycliffe produced a copy of the Bible in English for the first time. So, let's try this one, guys. So, this is a copy. This is a, a facsimile. <laughs> this is a facsimile of a 1395 Wycliffe Bible. So, this would be the second edition. When Wycliffe originally did it in 1380, it was, remember how I talked about translation? When you go from one word to another, that sometimes that doesn't work real well in another language. Well, what Wycliffe did was he took this this is the Latin Vulgate. So around 400, the year 400, a man named Jerome was asked by the Pope Damasus to correct the Old Latin Bible. The Old Latin Bible, that the Bible had been translated into Latin, the Old Latin, in 157 A.D. Well, it was used by all Christians in the West. It didn't agree with Roman Catholic doctrine. And so the Pope asked Jerome to make some corrections. What we have here, this is a facsimile of the Gutenberg Bible. The first book ever printed was a Latin Bible. That's what, this is a facsimile of it. What Wycliffe did, because Wycliffe didn't know any Greek or Hebrew, and he wouldn't have had access to manuscripts at that point. What he did was he took that Latin Vulgate and translated it into Middle English. You would have a very hard time reading it. The, the language is so different. Um, I've actually been reading it quite a bit lately, and you'd be surprised how much of it you can figure out. But it, it, it would take some work. But it's Middle English, and it was translated from the Vulgate, Latin, into English. And he wanted it for study. Because he believed there were two things that we needed to know. God's law and Christ's law. God is law. G-O-D-D-I-S, law. And Christ is law. And God is law is the whole Bible. Christ's law is the Gospels. And he believed that the only thing a church should do is what that says to do. Is that a pretty good idea? Isn't that, isn't that a good idea? Because what if I said, okay, uh, God has spoken to me and we now believe that all of you must give half of your income to me. You know what our church would say? Show me in the Bible. And it's a bummer for me, it's not there. Okay? So that's what so that's what had been going on. There were all kinds of laws, canon law, the laws of the church whether in England or in France or in in uh, Germany or Rome that they had added to the Bible that weren't from the Bible. And but and the people didn't have any idea because they didn't have a Bible and they couldn't have read it if they had it. 
And so what Wycliffe did was he realized that in order for the people to be able to live for God, they had to know what the Bible says. It was all about the gospel. That's what Wycliffe said. So Wycliffe made this translation that really wasn't a whole lot of help because you couldn't read it real well. Well, one of his assistants, a man with the most unfortunate name in the history of Christianity, his name was John Purvey, what he did was he produced this. And then this changed the world because those groups of people called the Lollards, they went all over the world with copies of Scripture. Now, they wouldn't have had a whole Bible because in today's money, one of these would have cost them sixty or $70,000. Any of you can afford a sixty or $70,000 book right now? So what they would do is they might have the Lord's Prayer in their language. As a matter of fact, in England... Under Henry VIII, a man was burned at the stake for having a piece of paper that had the Lord's Prayer written down in English. He was burned at the stake for that. And so what the Lollards would do is they would memorize Scripture. And what they realized was that language, that Scripture in the people's language, in a memorable, translated in a memorable way, could be memorized. And so they would memorize entire books of the Bible and walk into a city and recite the books of the Bible. And these people were hearing the Bible for the first time in their entire lives. Remember, when Martin Luther went to seminary, he had never seen a Bible. He was there to be a priest. And it's the first time that he ever saw a Bible, and it was a Latin Vulgate. Okay? So when Wycliffe made that... Tra- so that's in, that's in the 1500s, early 1500s, late 1400s. 1517 is when Martin Luther launched the uh, Protestant Reformation. So this is all the way in 1395. So now for over a hundred years, these Lollards are going all through England quoting Scripture, all over the British Isles quoting Scripture, really having an amazing influence. And so the state church had to kill them. And they started doing that. By the time, so Wycliffe was not killed. He died at 56 years old. Uh, Forty years later, they dug up his bones and burned them and and scattered them. And he was actually anathematized. That's a a declaration of damnation after his death because it it, it had just become a problem. So he died in 1386. In 1409, the head of the church in England, his name was uh, Thomas, um, I'll think of it in a minute. But he had these things called the Constitutions. And in those constitutions, he said this. I hope you all aren't too bored right now. Listen to what he said. This is now the law for England. No man hereafter by his own authority translate any text of the scripture into English or any other tongue by way of a book, libel, or treatise, So a treatise, a tract is a short book, a treatise is a longer book, and that no man read any such book, libel, or treatise, now lately set forth in the time of John Wycliffe. So this is is 1409, Wycliffe had died in 1386, Uh, until the said translation be allowed by the ordinary of the place, so that it be the the bishop, that he he that shall do contrary to this shall likewise be punished, as a favorer of heresy. Now, being punished as a favor of heresy means you're going to be burned at the stake. So if you had a copy of the Bible or made a copy of the Bible or just read a copy of the Bible, you would be killed. 
there was a man burned at the stake because someone saw him mouthing the words of the Lord's Prayer in English because of this 1409 decision. So Tyndale had been an Oxford scholar. He was protected in Oxford, University of Oxford. A hundred years later, a young man named William Tyndale. William Tyndale, he went to Oxford, to the university, when he was 12 years old. What are you losers doing? 12 years old, he goes to Oxford, and he's there for 10 years. He becomes an amazing, amazing scholar, and he was influenced by, it's believed, by Lollardy, those, those who were saying these things. And as a matter of fact, some of the common phrasing of the Bible that was just said in, in just common speech made its way into Tyndale's New Testament. So William Tyndale in 1526 produced his New Testament. Ready for this? This is the first time the New Testament is ever printed in English. Think about that. From the time Jesus ascended at 33 AD, the Bible was finished somewhere between 90 and 100 AD. It wasn't printed in English until 1526. And of course, the king couldn't have that. So if you remember, Henry VIII became the head of the Church of England. Why? Because he wanted to get a divorce. Right? So around 1524, he becomes the king. 1526, this Bible is printed. In the British Library, there's a copy of this Bible that was owned by Anne Boleyn. And you open it up and it says Anne Boleyn's Bible in it. And she was influenced by Tyndale. And so Tyndale, the King Henry, he thought, well, if Tyndale is this great scholar, let's bring him in. He'll be the, the king's scholar. And so he sent a representative to Tyndale, but because Tyndale, of course, had had to flee the country to make a translation. He went to Cologne, Germany. He had translated the Bible through the Gospel of Mark, and someone turned him in, so he had to flee, and he lost a bunch of his manuscripts. And so then he went to Antwerp and started printing the Bible. The first group of these uh, were smuggled into England, and Cuthbert Tunsell, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he had them gathered up and burned and would kill anybody who had one of these. And notice the size of it. Every book that Tyndale did that he produced was a pocket book. It wasn't like one of these. It wasn't like this so that it could be hidden. So Tyndale, so Henry VIII asked Tyndale, do you want to be the king or do you want to be the king's uh, uh, scholar, translator? And he said, well, will I have liberty to translate the Bible as it is? No. Well, then he wouldn't go. And so Henry VIII pursued him to his death. So he was hiding in Belgium, and he was living at the English house. So think of the English house almost as an embassy. So there were British people that were living in this house. They had safety from the surrounding governments because there was a bunch of British people that were together. There was a man named Henry Phillips who tricked Tyndale he was a cad. I can't tell you the whole story right now. And he offered to take him to lunch. As he came out of lunch, Tyndale was arrested. And he was put in prison for 16 months. We have letters from him to the authorities there in Antwerp that, um, can, can I have a coat? Can I have my coat? It's very cold. Can I have a light so I could see at night? He was kept in misery for 16 months. 
And then he was brought out, he was taken to the place of execution, and he was burned when he was 42 years old. The mercy was that after they had lit the fire, they strangled him. So he didn't die from the flames, he died of strangulation. They killed him. His last words, the last words of William Tyndale were, God, open the king of England's eyes. That was 1536. In 1537, Henry VIII authorized the Bible to be printed in English. There was a man, his name was John Rogers. John Rogers was a friend of Tyndale. Rogers was the chaplain, the English chaplain of the British house in Belgium. And what he did was Tyndale had finished his New Testament and he had translated the Pentateuch. While he was there, he studied Hebrew, Tyndale studied Hebrew, and for the first time in history, the Pentateuch was translated, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch was translated from uh, uh, Hebrew into English. This right here from William Tyndale, he did that. This had been printed. This had just been printed in 1530. Tyndale had finished the historical books, Judges through Second Chronicles but they hadn't been printed. John Rogers, after Tyndale was killed, made sure that those historical books were printed. So now half the Old Testament is printed. 1537, the king says, okay, let's get a, who, who do we have that can translate the Bible? And so they get John Rogers. John Rogers comes. This is John right here. Well, it's not really him. It's just his head. So Rogers produces the Matthews Bible. It's called the Matthews Bible because if he used his own name, he was afraid he would be killed, even though it was authorized by Henry VIII. And what this Bible is, this Bible, half of the Old Testament is Tyndale. All of the New Testament is Tyndale. And Rogers found a way to produce the rest of it through a man named Miles Coverdale. This is... He's here somewhere. Miles Coverdale. Very important man. We're not going to talk about him today. But Tyndale got no credit on this. He didn't care. What did God do? He opened the king of England's eyes. There's a Tyndale scholar named David Daniels. And he said, never forget that the English Bible is a bloody book. And what Tyndale opened, no man has ever closed. Isn't that great? So now we get to modern times. Are you all thankful for your Bible? We get to modern times. How many of you have a Bible? You have a Bible? So here's what's amazing. Down here. So the Bible's translated in 1611. Right here is a facsimile of a 1611 Bible. It was printed again in 1613. So the 1611 and the 1613 printings are almost identical. Things like in the first printing, in in, uh, Ruth 315, instead of he, it said she. So it's called the she Bible. The 1613 is called the he Bible. Just minor. Remember what they're doing. They're setting the type backwards and upside down. And so there were printers errors that were in it. So it was printed in 1611 and 1613. Those are basically the same. 
different forms came out in 1612, a single column Bible, smaller Bibles that people could have. The next major printing was 1617. This is a 1619. The 1619 is the same as the 1617. So you could come up right now and you could read this and it would read like your Bible. This is a 1619 Bible. This Bible is owned by Jeff Faggart and the Baptist History Preservation Society. It's on permanent loan to my exhibit. And the reason I wanted to bring this in is, will you pray for Jeff? His cancer is back. He had brain cancer. He was only given a 5% chance to live for a year. It, they got it all. He's lived for five years. Now he started to have some health trouble. They went back in and checked it, and the brain cancer is back. On Tuesday, they're going in, doing brain surgery. Can we pray for our friend, Jeff? Very important. But this is, this is 1619. This is 1679. 1679. In 1675, they started printing the Bible at Oxford. This is an early edition of that. You could come and see it, and it would read just like your Bible. Now, here's what I want to talk about preservation. Preservation. Are we all doing okay? People talk about we, we need to revise the Bible. And they'll say that the King James Version was revised. The date they usually use for the revision is 1769. In 1769, a man named Benjamin Blaney had been asked by Oxford to assess, because Oxford had gotten the right to print the Bible in uh, the, the 1600s. They wanted to make sure that the printer's errors were removed. So Blaney was asked to review the Bibles and see how is the, how is the Bible printed? How reliable, how accurate is it? So he compared it to the 1611, the things that were printed. And he produced this. This is a facsimile of it. This is the 1769 Benjamin Blaney Oxford edition of the Bible. And you could come up and read this. It would read very much like your Bible. So what we're told is if this, okay, if, if this was revised by this, why can't we revise it again now? Okay, so let me give you an example of what that means. The New American Standard Bible was printed, the New Testament in 1963, the Old Testament 1971, something like that. In 1996, they did an update. The 1996 New American Standard Bible has 6,973 fewer words than the original NASB. That's a significant change. Would you all agree with that? And so that's a revision. That's a revision. Um, the, the English Standard Version is a revision. The ESV is a revision of the revised standard version that was done in the 1940s and 1950s. The revised standard version was the Bible done by the National Council of Churches. It's, it's the liberal Bible. It's the one that says a young woman shall conceive when the Bible says a virgin shall conceive. Okay, let's take a vote. How many of you know there's a difference between a virgin and a young woman? Right? 
And so Crossway Publishers bought the rights to the uh, to the Revised Standard Version. They paid $600,000 to the National Council of Churches, and they said, we're going to remove the non-Christian readings from the Revised Standard Version. Well, that would be helpful, <laughs> wouldn't it? And so they produced the ESV in 07 or 08, and then they revised it. When they revised it, they changed some three or 400 words. That's happened four times since, three or 400 words. The last time was about 50 words. So hundreds and hundreds of changes within one modern translation. Are you all following me on this? And they say, well, the King James was revised. Why don't we do that? So I've got two points left and we'll be done. All right, I'm going to throw some numbers out at you. I need you to think with me for a minute, and then I want to wrap this up. I'm thankful for my Bible. It's different than all of the other Bibles. It is just different. So there are six editions of the King James Bible. You'd think there were more, but there are really just six editions. There is the 1611. We have one there, and we have one here, 1611. The first edition where they went in and corrected the changes, the, the, the mistakes in printing, uh, spelling, all of those kinds of things. The first time they did that was at Cambridge University in 1629. This is an actual copy of the 1629. This is the first corrected King James Bible, 1629. Some of you in the church when I was trying to buy this actually gave toward buying this. I'm very, I'm very thankful for it. It's, you, can, you could come and read it. The second time that the Bible, that people wanted to make sure it was right, that the printing was right, it was done in 1638. This is an actual copy of that 1638 Bible. You can come and see everything that was done in it. Two of the original King James translators, a man named Samuel Ward and a man named John Boyce, helped Cambridge University in producing this Bible. So this was the standard edition of the King James Bible from 1638 until 1762. What's that, 130 years? Then, also at Cambridge, there was a man named John Thomas Sawyer Paris. And in 1762 for Cambridge, he produced this. This is a pocket New Testament. You just have to have a big pocket. So... He produced this for Cambridge. So in 1769, then you had Benjamin Blaney. All right? Now, those are the five editions of the King James Bible. Original 1611, 1629, 1638, 1762, 1769. Yes, there will be a test. So, the next is my Bible. This is a modern King James Bible. This is printed by Allen, and this is an Oxford text. Some of you have a Cambridge Bible. If you have a Schofield Bible, that's an Oxford. Uh, how many of you have that local church Bible with the wide margin? That's a Cambridge text. So there's some minor differences. There are three word differences, three, between a Cambridge and an Oxford. Other than that, there's a lot of spelling differences primarily in the Old Testament of Old Testament names, places. And they had to make those up in English, so it doesn't matter how they're spelled. You can tell what they are, and Cambridge spelled them one way, Oxford spelled them another, so it doesn't matter. But they're, they're, it's the same. So there are six editions. 
There's the 1611. Listen, 1629, 1638, 1762, 1769, and modern King James Bible. Okay, here's, here's my illustration. I'm going to make one more point and we'll be done. NASB, 20 years later, NASB update. 7,000 words difference. 1611 to 2022, 135 words. That's it. And there, the words are just the same words. Like M-O-E meant more. Not, not that mo. M-O-E, it meant more. Your Bible doesn't say mo, it says more. That's a different word. How many of you that shakes your faith right there? You understand the difference? Removing the ascension of Jesus Christ. Removing the last 12 verses of Mark. Removing the best verse in the Bible on the Trinity. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. It's gone. The best statement of uh, the deity of Christ, the Son of God, in Mark 1, 1. Or 1 Timothy 3, 16, great is the, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God manifest in the flesh is removed. The, that's not the kind of change that was done in the King James Bible. So I'm thankful for the Bible. Why is this important? Why does any of this matter? Because, look at some verses with me and we'll be done. 1 Peter 1.23. 1 Peter 1.23. It matters because God promised to preserve his word. He gave them to us pure and then he promised to preserve them. So look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now, how many of you know it's important to be born again? Why do we know that? Because Jesus said you must be born again. That's what Jesus said. It was recorded and preserved in the Bible. Without the Bible, you cannot know that. All right? Look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Look at the book of Ephesians. Chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 8. For by grace, so grace is a gift, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we're saved by faith, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We cannot be saved without the Bible. We can't have our promise of eternal life and salvation, forgiveness of sin, without the Bible. Amen? Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
verse 12, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Is that our world? But this is Paul writing to Timothy. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known, look at what it says, the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Those good works don't save you. Those works are the result of salvation. Salvation comes from hearing the Word of God. The Holy Scriptures made him wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Why is the Bible important? Why am I thankful that I have the Bible today? Because the Bible made me aware of my lost and sinful condition before a righteous and holy God. Why did evil despots want to keep the word of God from the people? Why? Because they wanted to control the people. If if the leaders had to be held to what the Bible says, they couldn't behave the way that they were behaving. So they had to kill anybody that was going to take the control of the Bible out of their hands. That's a horrible result. The worst result is those people were not able to hear the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you have a Bible? Look, then you're without excuse. If you died today, are you 100% sure that you would go to heaven? Is Jesus your Savior? You say, yes, I believe that Jesus died on the cross, and I believe that he rose from the dead. Do you also believe that you have to be baptized, that you also have to do good, that you have to take communion, that you have to give money? That you, Do you have to do all of those things to go to heaven? Remember what the Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, Eli, come on up here. So this is my Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Mont Blanc pen. I want to make this a gift to you. What do you have to do to make it yours? Just take it. Now, in order to keep it, you've got to wash my car every week for the next 20 years. Why'd you give it back? Because it's not a gift. Thank you, Eli. Now, a young man like this, that's really not that bright. It's amazing (laughs) that he knows the difference between a gift and working for something. Why is it that religious people don't know that difference? The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy he saved us. Ephesians 2.8, we just looked at it. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. How do we know that? Because of the Bible. The Bible says that the gospel must be received. What is the gospel? How that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. And how that he was buried and rose from the dead the third day, according to the Scriptures. There's no salvation without the Bible. 
There's no salvation without the Bible. I'm so thankful that we have it. Now, you don't have to have a King James Bible to get saved. Amen? Man, people get saved all over the world with all different translations of the Bible. As long as though that gospel is in it, praise the Lord for that. Amen? But you do have to have the Bible to be saved. I'm thankful that they're pure words, that they're preserved words, and that based on the sacrifice of these men, they're precious words. I told you about how John Rogers produced the Matthews Bible, answered the prayer of Tyndale, Lord, God opened the King of England's eyes. Well, when Bloody Mary took over, John Rogers was the first person that she burned at the stake. The words that you hold in your hands, they're precious. They've come at a great price. Given supernaturally, preserved supernaturally, and then given to us through great sacrifice. I hope you're born again. It doesn't matter whether you're a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Catholic. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. The only thing that matters for your eternity is have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life. If it's by works then it's not a faith. That's what the Bible says. By faith, I hope that you will receive Christ as your Savior. Are you thankful for the Bible today? Let's all stand together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. What an amazing opportunity it is to tell the story of how you gave us our Bibles.